welcome to Made in India SLP podcast with your hosts Kinari and Rabab. Welcome to the fourth episode of Made in India SLP. For this episode, we will be discussing more about voice rehabilitation in head and neck cancers with Dr. Vrishali Angdi, an experienced clinician, professor, and researcher in this field. So Rabab, why don't you go ahead and introduce Dr. Angdi? Thank you, Kinari. I would love to. Dr. Vrishali Angri received a bachelor's and master's degree in speech-language pathology and audiology from AYJ-NISHD, Mumbai. She completed a research fellowship at the Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, India, with a focus on alaryngeal voice and speech rehabilitation. Thereafter, Dr. Angri went to earn her doctoral degree in rehabilitation sciences from the University of Kentucky, under the mentorship of Dr. Joseph Stemple. Currently, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders and a speech-language pathologist in the UK Voice and Swallow Clinic. Along with Drs. Joe Stemple and Richard Andrietta, she is also the co-director of the Laryngeal and Speech Dynamics Lab at the University of Kentucky. She has assisted Dr. Joseph Stemple in teaching a graduate class in voice disorders and also provides lectures to the otolaryngology residents at the University of Kentucky on diagnosis and management of voice disorders as well as alaryngeal voice rehab. Dr. Angri's main research focus is evidence-based post-treatment voice rehabilitation in the head and neck cancer population and improving accessibility to specialized clinical services such as those offered in a voice and swallow clinic. She continues her collaboration with Tata Memorial Hospital through a guest lecture series with their SLP team led by Dr. Arun Balaji. Welcome to our show. What a pleasure to have you here today. I'd like to start this conversation with some important facts. We now have enough evidence that shows some treatments for head and neck cancer, which are aimed at curing the disease, may end up having long-term and short-term impacts, mostly negative, on an individual's speech and swallowing function. Our scope of practice allows us to work on several aspects that can help the individual with head and neck cancer to optimize safe swallowing, communication, and overall quality of life. In the practice, it is so common to see the side effects of chemoradiation on the speech and voice quality. In non-laryngeal tumors, the voice is less likely to be affected in comparison to the laryngeal tumors. So can we take a few minutes to talk about what the voice assessment typically looks like, especially in the evaluation of organ preservation protocols? So first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I love that you're trying to bridge this gap between continents, uh, you know, especially across practice patterns. So I just love that aspect of your podcast. This is a population that is very close to my heart. And not a lot of people know this, but if it wasn't for that clinical rotation at Tata Memorial Hospital, I would have been an audiologist. So I (laughs) fell in love with that head and neck cancer population when I was there. And it stayed that way. And I knew when I was there that this would be my life's work. And just for our listeners, uh, I want you to know that Kennery and Rabab are super organized and sent me the list of questions (laughs) beforehand. And I am thankful for that because when I read that first question, I was thinking, my God, this is a loaded question and is going to take me more than a couple of minutes to answer it. So the information that I provide today is probably barely going to scratch the surface of the importance of the role of an SLP. But I'm hoping that at the end of our podcast, our listeners understand what uh, makes this population clinically unique and how the role of an SLP is critical to improving quality of life. I'm going to focus on voice rehabilitation for the purpose of this podcast, uh, but I do want us to remember that the role of the SLP extends beyond organ preservation, which means that we also come in when the organ is lost. So that's when uh, we come in to rehabilitate alaryngeal speech and voice. Even before we talk about what a typical assessment looks like, I'd first like to clarify some of the terminology for our listeners. Once I do that, I'd like to give our listeners just a broad overview of some of the common treatment modalities in this population, but I'll focus on radiation therapy 
because it has a direct impact on voice quality. So Kennedy, one of the first terms you used was that organ preservation protocol. And organ preservation essentially means that this is a non-surgical modality. That is, you're preserving the organ, which in this case is usually the larynx. And to give you some history, until the early 90s, the first line of treatment for these T3, T4 laryngeal cancers was total laryngectomy. And then a study completed at the Veterans Affairs Hospital demonstrated that survival rates for primary chemoradiation therapy, meaning that that's the only treatment, non-surgical, and total laryngectomy were comparable. So consequently, organ preservation protocols gained popularity and were offered as a treatment with the intent of maintaining survival, but also avoiding the loss of larynx, a permanent tracheostomy, and avoiding all of those communication issues that came with it. That was the original intent of organ preservation. The other group of cancers that commonly receive these treatment, and we don't refer to it conventionally as organ preservation, is those non-laryngeal tumors that you mm -hmm. talked about, which are your oropharyngeal and nasopharyngeal tumors. So in the oropharyngeal tumors, the area that is usually targeted is the base of tongue and tonsillar cancers. That's the group of cancers. Your oral cavity cancers, the first line of treatment is usually surgical resection. So they don't really come into the organ preservation part. For example, if the patient has a tongue cancer or a lip cancer, they're going to have a resection. And then subsequently, depending upon what the disease features are, they may or may not have chemoradiation therapy or radiation therapy. When we're talking about primary chemoradiation therapy, the common group that you'll see will be laryngeal cancers, oropharynx, so base of tongue, tonsil, loss of tonsillar sulcus, all of those and nasopharyngeal cancers. There's several different modalities in which radiation therapy can be delivered, but the two main common delivery types that we see with our, not just all head and neck cancers, but with the organ preservation group or laryngeal cancers or nasopharyngeal cancers um, and oropharyngeal cancers, it really differs in terms of the size of the field that they target. So as a new clinician, if you see the words intensity modulated radiation therapy or that your patient received intensity modulated radiation therapy, the first thing that you should think about is, oh, this was probably an early cancer. It was a localized cancer which received a narrow field of radiation therapy. So that's the first thing you're thinking. The other type is when the radiation field is wider. So it doesn't just target that tumor, it's targeting the surrounding areas and it's also targeting the neck so that the lymph nodes are treated. So those are your larger cancers which are more late stage or more aggressive. Patients with T3, T4 cancers or larger nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal cancers are the ones who fall into that group. And that's the group that will typically also receive chemotherapy in addition to radiation therapy. Whereas your early vocal cord cancers are the ones that receive IMRT, intensity modulated mm -hmm. radiation therapy or narrow field radiation therapy, typically do not receive chemotherapy. You know, one of the things that we always struggle with for those of us who work in this area is that we really don't know what the isolated effect of chemotherapy is on voice, but we know what the effect of radiation therapy is on voice because we know that you know radiation, even when delivered alone, has a direct impact on voice quality. Right. But we don't know how chemotherapy affects voice quality. And so that's something that we always have to keep in mind. What does that mean, narrow versus wide? Narrow the field of radiation therapy, lower collateral damage. So there's going to be lower damage to say, the epiglottis and the oropharynx and the hypopharynx. Wider the field of radiation therapy, larger the amount of collateral damage. Okay, so you're going to see that generalized edema, swelling, and that's the damage that we're talking about. You have to keep in mind that radiation injury is a long-standing change to tissues. One word that now we've probably heard way too much in the times of COVID-19 is the new normal. Yeah. <laughs> and we know how much we all hate that word now. This is your new normal. Your radiation patients will hear that word very often. This is your new normal. Your tissues are always going to be swollen and you know your larynx is always going to look like this. So that is something that they will hear over and over again. So you have to be very cognizant of the fact that this is not something that they like to hear. Clinically, you'll always see that swelling and that swelling, whether it is a non-laryngeal tumor or a laryngeal tumor, will extend to the vocal folds. You will see hypervascularity of the vocal fold tissues. For example, in early vocal fold cancers, it is not unnatural for you to see a vocal fold hemorrhage 
even on the unaffected side because they all end up with these prominent blood vessels on the vocal mm-hmm. folds. Even if it is narrow field radiation therapy, there are studies that show that the treated vocal fold and the contralateral vocal fold both are affected. So the collateral damage is even there if it is narrow field radiation therapy. However, it doesn't really affect those supraglottic tissues and the oropharyngeal tissues. So the nice part about narrow field radiation therapy is that these patients don't end up with dysphagia. The bad part about that, though, is as clinicians, we're so stuck on treating dysphagia in the head and neck cancer patient that we forget that they have communication problems. So one of the factors that you know sparked my interest with the early vocal cord cancers was as a new clinician, I would focus on what's your weight loss like, what are you eating, so on and so forth. And then this was when I was at Tata Memorial Hospital. One of my patients was a fruit seller. And he said that I'm eating just fine, but how do I get back to my job? Because I don't have much of a voice right now. That's when I realized that we had probably completely missed this group of patients because they didn't have those overt difficulties that we're used to hearing with our head and neck cancer patients. And we'd forgotten about some of those communication issues, which impact the quality of life significantly. The other part is, as far as clinical findings are concerned, it's not just about the vocal folds, you're also changing the characteristics of the vocal tract. So for example, if your tissues are swollen all the way through, the resonating characteristics of the vocal tract changes. Depending upon where the tumor was, so say you had a large epiglottic tumor, now that's melted away, it's probably going to take the epiglottis along with it. So now again, there's one structure that's completely missing that is going to change the structure of the vocal tract. If you had a vocal fold tumor localized or which involved the entire vocal fold, you might see scarring in that area. When you're evaluating a patient who has a history of radiation therapy or chemo radiation therapy, those are the things that you already have to keep in mind before you evaluate them. So what is the history of their treatment, essentially how far out are they? As far as completing their voice evaluation, which was your original question, even in the absence of a head and neck cancer, every voice evaluation, regardless of the diagnosis, should involve a good case history, a stimulability assessment, and a detailed voice assessment or a detailed multi-dimensional voice assessment. When you're talking about a multidimensional voice assessment, you have to cover the five domains of voice assessment, which is the recommended assessment battery. So that includes auditory perceptual evaluation. What are you hearing as a clinician? What is the degree of roughness? What is the degree of strain? What is the degree of breathiness? All of those aspects. Then patient self-report. How does the patient perceive his own voice? How is it impacting his function? How is it impacting communication activities of daily living? That's the other part of the assessment. Then acoustic assessment, instrumental analysis of voice. So jitter, shimmer, noise to harmonics ratio, all of that good stuff. Aerodynamic assessment, how does the valving capability of the larynx affect voice quality or voice use? An aerodynamic assessment, I think, gives you a very nice functional assessment of how the larynx is functioning. And then extremely, extremely important is a laryngeal examination, but it has to be a laryngeal examination with stroboscopy because you have to know what the vibratory patterns of the vocal folds are to assess candidacy. It can't be just a flexible exam under halogen light. It has to be an examination under stroboscopic light. So in dysphagia, you know how we say that you cannot treat a patient without an instrumental swallowing evaluation. In voice, you cannot treat a patient without a stroboscopic evaluation, a self-assessment, auditory perceptual evaluation. Now, I am completely aware of the fact that I work in a voice and swallow clinic, so I have very easy access to everything that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. So that is in an ideal world. Yes, that is what you do. However, even if you're working in a small clinic, you know, just to give you a history of where I came from, after I finished my master's degree, I was working in my own private practice and I was also completing my fellowship at Tata. Actually, I started after my bachelor's degree. So my perspective comes from working in the Indian context. I have worked Mm -hmm. in the Indian context for six years. 
and I worked on every possible setup. Private practice, public hospitals, private hospitals, you name it, I've done it. So say you're a private practitioner or you have a small clinic in a hospital, there are still a lot of these things that you can do. So I don't want a new clinician or a practicing clinician to think that their capabilities are limited because they don't have all of this nice instrumentation. So for example, uh, you can complete an auditory perceptual evaluation by using something like the Gerber scale. It is mm -hmm. not language specific. It is a scale of zero to three, overall rate of voice or severity, roughness, breathiness, asthenia, strain. You give mm -hmm. the person's voice a score. One of my closest friends and colleagues, Dr. Joshi, Ashwini Joshi from Houston, actually developed a Hindi KPV, oh. which is the consensus auditory perceptual evaluation of voice. Mm -hmm. And the English KPV actually shows the highest level of inter-rater and intra-rater reliability. What she worked on was validating that in Hindi. And we just submitted that paper, you know, so hopefully there'll be more that comes out of that. But, you know, what I'd like to say to all of those young clinicians and master students out there is that validating these scales in different languages is a really nice master's thesis project and can have a significant clinical impact on the Indian clinical population. It's extremely helpful. For those of you who can do it, I'm strongly going to encourage you to do it because you have that clinical population in place. The other thing is there's also a Canada version of the KV which has been validated. As far as doing, getting an idea of what the patient's voice-related quality of life is. The VRQOL, which is the voice-related quality of life questionnaire, is available in Hindi and Marathi, and the VHI has been validated in Hindi as well. Now again, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to all of those uh, master students out there. You want to validate it in your own language, please do it. Please do it. It'll be a great tool for your clinical practice. Acoustic analysis, you don't have to have a computerized speech laboratory. PRAT is something that is available for free download. So you can get a nice acoustic analysis from free software. Aerodynamic analysis, again, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Joshi, did a lot of nice work on certain aerodynamic parameters and compared it to the phonatory aerodynamic system. So she used low-tech devices and compared some of those measures with those high-tech devices and found good agreement. Okay, so those papers are good to look at as well. So that way you don't have to invest in a lot of expensive instrumentation. You can actually have some low-tech devices and use them in, the, in your clinic and still complete that aerodynamic analysis. The tricky one is the last one, which we absolutely need, which is the laryngeal examination and stroboscopy. What do you do? Okay, do you buy your own one? I would encourage you to do it, but I hope you have a lot of money then. Okay. <laughs> If you do buy it, always remember that you have to partner with an ENT or a head and neck surgeon because every laryngeal examination that you complete, you have to run it by a medical professional to make sure that your patient is disease-free. You cannot start rehabilitative treatment unless you know that, especially a patient with head and neck cancer, is in mm -hmm. remission. If you don't have that instrumentation, partner with a head and neck surgeon or an ENT who has that instrumentation. So what you're going to do is work with them, but when they refer a patient your way, insist on having a video of the examination. Because as a speech language pathologist, you should be able to look at that exam. And then with your case history, stimulability assessment, and everything else, you should be able to assess whether this patient is a good candidate for therapy or not. In a very large nutshell, <laughs> that's what you do. What would be ideal and of course, COVID-19 has added a whole other layer of complexity, right, to everything that we do right now. For those of you who do endoscopy, remember it is an aerosol-generating procedure. Speech is an aerosol-generating procedure. As a voice therapist, see what you can do via telehealth as far as therapy is concerned. And as far as assessments are concerned, make sure that you're doing them with full PPE on you're probably not going to be able to do aerodynamic assessments. You don't really want anything where the patient is, you know, forcibly breathing out or anything to that effect. Mm -hmm. Within the context of COVID-19, things have changed significantly, but hopefully as we move out of that time, go back to your five domains of voice assessment. That is something that should be your standard of practice. I really like the fact that now our listeners know that there are tests available in regional languages and we should go out there and look for them and use them in clinics. 
As we know, laryngeal cancer is the seventh most common cause of cancer in males in India, according to Bhattacharya in 2018. The whole goal of our treatment approach in oligglottic cancer usually is to achieve best functional outcomes. So what is your take on vocal functional exercises, especially in dysphonia management post-organ preservation? And as a dysphagia-focused head and neck cancer clinician, I've heard a lot of use it or lose it. Mm -hmm. Is that applicable to voice therapy as well? So first, let me say that this question made me smile because you said, what do you think of vocal function exercises? And the short answer to that question is, I think they're great. Okay, but <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about why I think that. Let's start with the first part of that question when you said laryngeal cancer is the seventh most common cause of cancers in males in India. What we're still struggling in, in the Indian context is that we really don't know what the true incidence and prevalence is of head and neck cancers. It has been very difficult for our public health professionals to generate a population-based registry. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the estimates across hospitals, across studies, you see that it's anywhere between 20 to 50% in some centers. There are states like UP, Andhra Pradesh, and I think Odisha that still don't report to a population-based registry. And these are some of the most populous states in the country. So, you know, what worries me is that the numbers that we have right now are grossly underreported. When I moved to the States, what was interesting to me is that head and neck cancers constitute about three to 5% of all cancers in the United States. And when you look at numbers in India, like I said, it's 20 to 50%. So for all of those graduating clinicians or practicing clinicians out there, I'm really going to encourage you to build a competency or a skill set in this area because there is a large population of underserved individuals in the country. Treatment should not be limited to just the Tata Memorial Hospital or the big hospitals in Calcutta or Ramrita Institute or Ames or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. It has to extend even to community-based private practices. Let's just try to understand what the true impact of head and neck cancers can be just within the Indian population and how much of that impact is missed because we don't know the incidence and prevalence. Now, back to your question um, on vocal function exercises. I like them, which is why I picked Dr. Stemple to be my advisor. <laughs> But let me also tell you that when I was at Tata Memorial Hospital, I had these little tapes with vocal function exercises and resonant voice therapy on them. And that's how I thought I was learning the exercises then. Two years later, I met Dr. Stemple, enrolled in the PhD program and realized that I was doing the exercises wrong the whole time. Okay, <laughs> so that's something that's very important for all of us clinicians out there as we're developing our competency in an area, make sure that you're developing those skills with the right people, with the people who have some sort of experience in that area of specialization. Why do I like vocal function exercises? Not because Dr. Stemple is my advisor. I like vocal function exercises because now there are 36 outcome studies that say that vocal function exercises work to enhance the normal voice, the aging voice in disorders of laryngeal pathology and with my study, in the laryngeal cancer population that was irradiated. So it has the largest amount of evidence-based surrounding. That's not to say that other physiologic voice therapy methods are not good. It's just that they haven't been studied in different populations. So that's something that we have to keep in mind. You know, what's also nice about vocal function exercises is that they're easy to study. They're very mm -hmm. prescriptive. You do them two times per day. You're tracking maximum phonation times. There's a lot you can do with that data and it's easy mm -hmm. to look at outcomes. It's a little difficult to do that with some of the other techniques, but techniques are becoming more prescriptive. And what's nice with the newer techniques is that they also have a functional speech-based focus to them. So one of the drawbacks of vocal function exercises is that they are not a speech-based exercise. We don't all speak in a, ooh, yeah. we talk. Yeah. You can have a patient who does vocal function exercises who can have a maximum phonation time of 60 seconds and then go back to their, their glottal fry voice. With your head and neck cancer patient or your irradiated patient, you'll have to develop or you'll have to use an eclectic voice approach. So when I completed my study, I looked at vocal hygiene, which I uh, used as standard of care. 
and the other group was vocal hygiene and vocal function exercises. And what I saw was that with the vocal hygiene group also, I saw some improvement in voice-related quality of life. This is one of those groups where you really can't get rid of vocal hygiene completely. You still have to tell your patients, stay well hydrated, you know, don't drink too much caffeine, don't eat too much spicy food, definitely don't smoke. That's a big one, right, with all of mm -hmm. our patients in the head and neck cancer population. So hygiene is big. You might have to have a symptomatic approach if this patient is constantly clearing their throat or using a volume or a pitch that is more compensatory but not conducive to voice use. So you're going to have to have a symptomatic approach in, that, in the beginning. And then as far as using a primary treatment program, I like a physiologic exercise-based voice approach. And like vocal function exercises, I like having a prescriptive approach because it does promote vocal fold pliability. It does promote better glottic closure. So when you do that stroboscopic analysis, you're basically seeing which of these aspects are affected and which of these aspects can you help with voice therapy. I don't think there's a one and done approach at all to voice therapy, not just with your head and neck cancer patient, but with any patient. And during your stimulability assessment, you're going to see which of these methods is easiest for the patient in the beginning so that they have some point to start. And then what can you continue with and how you're going to shape those voicing behaviors. Now, back to your use it or lose it question, as far as voice is concerned, we really don't have any studies that talk about prophylactic voice exercises during radiation. So that's an area that still needs to be studied. Logically speaking, I think it helps, but I wouldn't know until I test that hypothesis. So Rishali, I have a follow-up question. That whenever you went Tata, you had these audio tapes of vocal functional exercises uh -huh. and resonant voice therapy. And then you realized two years later you were doing them wrong. So is there like a place where the listeners can find video recordings or the right way to do these exercises so they know and they're like monitoring how they're doing it and how they're teaching it to their clients? So that's a great question. There are some videos online and there are some. So for example, Dr. Stempo's MedBridge talk has him demonstrating not just the vocal function exercises, but also resonant voice therapy. Same for Dr. Verdolini. She has a couple of videos online. In some cases, honestly, the easiest thing to do is email us and say, do you have some time to teach me vocal function exercises? Vocal function exercises are not trademarked like LSVT or any. If one of us is competent in them, we're happy to teach you the exercises. The same for experts in you know, either resonant voice therapy or any other physiologic voice program. Mm -hmm. The other thing to do is you know, make sure that you're staying on top of CEUs. What we are trying to do when, for example, with my collaboration with Arun, who's at Tata Memorial Hospital, mm -hmm. what we try to do is have this grand grounds kind of setup where we either do case studies or talk about stroboscopy one time and we talk about dysphagia another time. And at some point, I'm sure we'll get to the voice therapy part of it. That's how I'll end up teaching them. Hopefully, he'll have a conference in the future, the kind of uh, conference that Dr. Stemple has been part of in the past, where he teaches groups of people vocal function exercises. So a second part to my question was, let's take a case study, for example. We have a 55-year-old man uh, with laryngeal cancer has undergone chemo radiation and he complains of reduced loudness, reduced pitch, increased vocal fatigue and vocal strain. And he's come to us seeking SLP intervention. So my question would be, how would we determine that this individual is a candidate for vocal functional exercises or resonant voice therapy? You know, what I liked about this question is this is exactly the kind of information that we would receive from the treating physician, right? In fact, mm -hmm. it would be much lesser. He'd say, this 55-year-old guy has had a T3 cancer and he's been treated with chemo radiation therapy. He's disease-free. Great. And that is the information that a physician would give you because that is the area that they're concerned with. Is this person disease-free or not? Now, this is where our role is different from the physician. So then this patient comes to you and I thought this would be a fun way to do a little exercise now with the two of you. It's going to be a 40-year-old female, 
say she's received chemo radiation therapy for T3 larynx cancer. She's disease free now. And she's a speech pathologist. And that's going to be one of you. One of the things that a lot of your previous speakers have touched on is the importance of a good case history. So what I was thinking is it would be fun to go through what a good case history should look like in a mm -hmm. voice and swallow clinic. Give it a bit of a thought. Give it of who this lady is. Because the problem is when you receive this information from an MD, you really don't know who your patient is. Mm -hmm. And your patient should not be determined by your diagnosis. Your patient shouldn't be that patient with larynx cancer. Let's say it's 40-year-old Kinnery, who is a speech pathologist, works in an outpatient setup, and she's just been treated for a stage 3 larynx cancer. She's disease-free. I like that description a lot better because now that's the human we're treating. But I still don't know Kinnery very well. My first question usually to a lot of these patients is, I've gone through your reports. I've gone through your treatment history. I'm happy to hear that the doctor has said that you're now cancer-free. That's great news. What's going on with you? But he's, he's telling me that you're still having some troubles with your voice. So what's going on with your voice? Can you tell me a little bit? I'm an outpatient speech therapist. I treat pediatrics. I have difficulty sustaining my voice for an entire 60 minute or 30 minute session. Mm -hmm. As you know, working with kids requires lots of pitch modulation. I'm unable to do that. I get extremely tired by the end of the day and I have almost aphonia. It's difficult for me to even produce a voice. And my vocal strain gets very prominent. I have a lot of difficulty seeing any patients after a while. So because you're a speech pathologist, you gave me a beautiful description of what your voice <laughs> problems are, right? Now, say you weren't a speech pathologist, which is going to be quite a few of your patients. A lot of them actually won't know how to answer that question. So you'll have to cue them. You'll say you probably had voice problems even before you had treatment, but what have you been experiencing after treatment? And then I'll give them descriptors. Like I'll say, do you feel like your voice is pretty rough throughout the day? Do you feel like it's pretty normal? What is the pattern of the changes in your voice quality? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of your patients will say it comes and goes. A lot of them will say that when I wake up first thing in the morning, I barely have a voice. And then as the day goes by and I use my voice a lot more, I'll have a voice. And then again, it deteriorates by the end of the day, which is exactly the description that you gave me. Now, the other thing in this case is that you are a professional voice user, but all of our patients communicate in some or the other way. Like I have a lady on my caseload right now who has four kids. During the times of COVID-19, they're all homeschooled. So they're all home and she's talking to them all the time. So her voice really doesn't stay throughout the day. So try to establish a pattern of what your voice use is like. One of the other things you told me is that you lose your voice by the end of the day. So my follow-up question to you at that time would be, so when you get home, are you able to talk to your family? It depends on the day. It depends Sometimes. on the day. Depending on my caseload, how much I use my voice during the day. Okay. Besides work, how do you use your voice? I sing at church every at church. Sunday. Okay. And have you been able to do that since your treatment? No, my pitch just doesn't work along with the whole choir. And is singing at church something that makes you happy? Very happy. It is an important part of who I am. There you go. So that's the kind of information, again, that you're trying to get from your patient is what is the level of happiness that is affected by their voice problem? A lot of my patients will say that once I go home, I don't talk to my family. I don't talk to my grandkids on the phone anymore. So just imagine the impact of that voice disorder on social isolation or on social communication. Because I feel that for those of us who practice, you know, and voice disorders were sometimes are like the cosmetic or the plastic surgeons of speech language pathology. Everyone is yeah. like, it's just a voice problem. Is it really important? No, it is. You know, it has a significant impact on quality of life. Mm -hmm. It is the most basic form of communication. It is what makes us happy. In fact, I had this uh, gentleman who was a 45-year-old coal miner from West Virginia, and he said he hadn't spoken to his kids in three years because he didn't like how he sounded. That's a pretty significant impact. So in your case history, especially for a patient who has a T3 laryngeal cancer, 
the focus of our case history might be more on the swallowing rather than the voice part of things because these patients have pretty significant dysphagia as well. Part of a good case history in a voice and swallow clinic is that you focus on the three Ds, which is dysphonia, dysphagia, dyspnea. So once I'm done with the voice questions, my next question is going to be, how swallowing? Do you have any swallowing problems? Yes, at this time I'm eating only pureed food or food that's very minced. So that would be like applesauce or um, brown rice in any kind of soupy texture, some stews. Sometimes I cough, sometimes I don't. I have mm-hmm. to go very slowly. And it's very embarrassing, especially when I'm out at restaurants and I have a choking episode. Mm-hmm. So have you stopped going out because of that? I haven't been to a restaurant in a long time. In a long yeah. time. I'm sorry about that. Have you had any chest infections or pneumonias recently? Not recently, but I had pneumonia. I think it was something related to aspiration and I was hospitalized a few months ago. Okay. And they did a swallow study? Did they send yes. you an x-ray and do a swallow study? Yes, they gave me some things to eat and we did an x-ray, but I don't have those findings right now. So who's following up with you? You are the first person I've seen in a while. Okay, well, that's good information to know because uh, based on what you're telling me, we either need to get those results or send you for another swallow study. Have you lost weight recently? Yes, around 30 to 40 kgs since radiation started. And has your weight been stable in the past month or are you still losing weight? I have lost some, but it's not as significant as before. And do you have like a constant low-grade fever or chills or anything like that? That happened when I was hospitalized, but not right now. It hasn't happened recently. Okay. So at this point, so you've done two things, right? With the voice part of it, you've already educated the patient on the fact that they are having voice problems and now you acknowledge them. Same with the swallowing part of it. So when I see new clinicians taking a case history, usually what they'll say is, how's your swallowing? The patient says it's fine. And then there's no follow-up question. So you have to keep asking, well, how do you tolerate different textures? Are you coughing or choking? Is food coming back up? Have you had any chest infections, pneumonia or weight loss? You have to make sure that those follow-up questions come up because your patient doesn't know what the signs and symptoms of a voice problem are or a swallowing problem are or a breathing problem are. So your case history, you almost want to think of it as an educational session for your patient. Follow-up would be something like, well, you think that you're telling me that you're swallowing tells me that there's something wrong and we need to investigate what's going on with it. Mm -hmm. And then the third D is the dyspnea or the breathing part. So it'll say, how's your breathing? Whenever I'm talking, I feel like I'm going short of breath. Mm -hmm. I'm breathing heavy. And sometimes when I'm talking, it sounds like I'm breathing out. And does the shortness of breath happen only with speaking or is it even happening just with mild activity around the house? Say you climb up a flight of stairs or if you're laying down, are you waking up short of breath? Uh, No, it's mainly with talking, not with like any other activities. Good. So that's good information. So in addition to the fact that, you know, you don't hear any strider or anything from the patient because laryngeal edema is a side effect of radiation therapy. A lot of your patients might have significant laryngeal edema that is obstructing their airway. So a good question to ask them are, you know, are you short of breath all the time? How are you feeling as you're sitting in front of me? Do you get short of breath when you lay down? Are you waking up gasping for breath? So those are all good questions. Mm -hmm. For your smokers or patients with COPD or lung disease, you're going to ask them, do you use oxygen at night? How -hmm. much oxygen are you using? The next question that I'll ask you can get a little personal. I'll just say, how are things? How are things at home? So I have two kids Mm -hmm. and they are really young. Sometimes it gets crazy around the house. I've noticed that whenever I'm like really hyper or angry, I'm facing more issues in my talking. My voice gives up on me. And another thing I've noticed is with the weather, I'm feeling some differences. I'm having more troubles bringing out my speech. Are you able to get loud if you need to? If I'm not talking a lot, it's okay. But when I'm talking a lot, then it's harder. Okay. 
Good. Okay. So that's great information because your patient is already telling you that it's pretty frustrating at home Mm -hmm. and that their voice is affecting their daily quality of life, which is separate from what is happening professionally. Mm -hmm. So you already told me that you're barely making it with your voice at work. And now you're telling me that even at home, your voice is significantly affected. Now at this time is when you also have to get a good idea of what the patient's support system is like. And if there are any personal or financial issues that could get in the way of their progress. And it is extremely important to document those as well. The treatment for head and neck cancers is long and tedious and it's a long time before people can return to work. So there's a treatment burden, but there's a financial burden as well, which translates into all of these psychosocial issues that patients have. And we can't ignore those because they're all barriers to progress through treatment. Mm -hmm. So if your patient can't come to you for therapy or can't even come for disease surveillance, how are we going to ensure that this patient is going to do well? So it's extremely important to get an idea of that. Head and neck cancers have one of the highest survival rates as compared to other cancers, even with, you know, your late stage tumors. Do you guys know what another scary statistic about head and neck cancers is? They have the highest suicide rate. But the big question that we need to ask ourselves as healthcare professionals is, what are we missing that we're letting these patients survive for so long only for them to go into depression or not being able to return to work to where they take such a drastic step. And you might be the first person who's asked this individual that, but that's where we're better as rehabilitation therapists. We look at the person. So looking at, I'll I'll say it over and over again, get to know who your patient is. Be best friends with the psychologist, be best friends with the social worker, be best friends with the nurse, be best friends with the head and neck surgeon. You can't treat depression. You can't treat all of those financial issues, but you can certainly point them in the right direction and say, ask the social worker and say if they can help you with some of the transportation costs. Go to the psychologist or, you know, go to the psychiatrist and see if you need to be on any medication for so-and-so. But make sure that, one, you're addressing what you can treat as a speech-language pathologist, but two, also understanding in which direction do you need to send the patient in for them to improve the quality of life? Because it certainly doesn't start and end with the speech language pathologist or the head and neck surgeon. There are other things that they have to address. So for example, in the Indian context, or even here, you see marriages that don't last through treatment. We have patients who are abandoned by their families through treatment. Those are things that you need information on because then you know how are you going to support these individuals beyond their disease once they've survived it. And then, of course, make sure you get a good medical history. One of the side effects of radiation therapy is hypothyroidism. So if your patient is not having routine thyroid function tests, make sure you alert your treating head and neck surgeon of that. Make sure you have a good idea of what their other medical history is, what their other surgical history is. And then, of course, social history in terms of do they, are they still smoking, what's their alcohol intake like, what's their water intake like, what's their caffeine intake like, and what's their dietary intake like. So all of that should be in a good case history. Mm-hmm. And in the Indian context, we're all pressed for time. That is the biggest issue. Yeah. So we have to understand that there's a huge difference. And if that's the case, then that doesn't mean that we compromise on the questions that we ask because all of this doesn't take too long. But just make sure that you have that support system in place, the professionals in place, so that you can still make all of these referrals. So because you're pressed for time doesn't mean that you compromise on care. Just become more efficient with time management. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Rashali. In your practice, when you see a patient for voice therapy following organ preservation, what does a typical voice therapy treatment protocol and a maintenance schedule look like? Do we recommend it as, as SLPs that they continue these exercises on a long-term basis? I mean, like every day for the rest of your lives? Mm-hmm. So again, that's a really good question. So in that first session of therapy, one, you've already got a pretty good idea of who your patient is now, right? Mm-hmm. So my patient was a 40-year-old speech pathologist. Um, 
who wants to get back to work, you know, mm-hmm. wants a functional voice at work, but also wants a functional voice when she comes home so that she's not socially isolated from her family. Correct. So in a nutshell, yeah, right. that's, that's who my patient is. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that very first therapy, now, depending upon, say, on the stroboscopic analysis, you know, one that she's disease free, but I see some issues with glottic closure, I see some hyperfunction, and I see some reduced pliability. Okay, that's mm-hmm. typically what you would see in one of these patients. Um, but she can get good glottic closure and she is stimulable for a good voice in that very first session. So I have determined that you are a good set, you know, you're a good candidate for voice therapy. One of the things that, uh, you know, I did, I didn't talk about when you talked about case history was at the end of that session, I will typically ask my patient as to what their expectations from therapy are. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you have to calibrate those expectations with what you can and cannot do. So for example, um, say my patient said that I want to go back to a completely normal voice quality to the way things were before. I'm not sure I can guarantee that. Right. Okay. But what I can tell the patient is, you know, what I'm hearing is that you want to sustain your voice at work. You want to sustain your voice when you're home. You want to be able to get loud when you can. How about we start working on those things? Because that is the most functional way for this patient to use their voice. Mm-hmm. So I would start with what their expectations are and then give them a realistic idea of what can and cannot be done and then calibrate those expectations. So neither of us are coming into voice therapy with any false hopes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Then with the stimulability assessment and, you know, just playing around with therapeutic probes, see what the patient can do, you know, do they get a beautiful buzz with vocal function exercises in that very first session? Yes. Great start them on vocal function exercises. But are they still falling into glottal fry every time they speak? Then start resonant voice therapy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it all comes down to how your patient presents in that particular session. For some of my professional voice users, I'd also say, you know, um, say my patient is a teacher. One of the things I'll say to them is, I'd really encourage you to use amplification when you're in the classroom. Mm -hmm. That way you're not straining your voice. So give them strategies around that. Because the one thing I'm very uh, frank about is saying that, you know, this injury is permanent and there's really nothing I can do for that swelling to go down. But what I'm working on is making sure those vocal folds close all the way. We can get some pliability back and you're not straining your voice too much. However, I am still limited because that structure isn't really going to change much. But what I'm working on is improving function with the structural limitations that we have okay so that's something that you have to make very uh, clear to your patient Mm -hmm. so what therapy approach you use it really depends upon what your patient responds best to but also don't keep someone on your therapy schedule for six months when it comes to voice therapy okay your patient should start getting better within those three to four sessions within that first month if they're not getting better you're doing something wrong Okay. Now, as far as a maintenance schedule is concerned, I think that's a really good question as well. Um, I tell my patients to continue doing their vocal function exercises on a regular basis. And now this is not something that I have any empirical evidence on, but I'll tell you what my patients tell me anecdotally. My patients say that it's a really nice way to warm up their voice. Mm-hmm. So once they do their vocal function exercises, first thing in the morning, their voice stays consistent through the day and they're not worried about turning on their voice anymore. This mm-hmm. is especially that group of patients who says that I don't have a voice when I wake up in the morning and I get a voice maybe, you know, two hours later. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of patient, once you prime them by doing vocal function exercises in the morning or resonant voice therapy or stretch and flow, whatever it might be, they can maintain their voice through their day. The other thing I tell my patients is make sure that you're taking vocal naps. Like I said, this is an injured system. You don't want to push it too much because it is going to fatigue beyond the point. Okay, so take vocal naps during the day. Um, Like I said, this is also a patient where you see prominent vascularity on the vocal folds very often. It's not uh, unnatural for you to see a vocal fold hemorrhage, okay? 
So when you're setting them up for treatment, educate them on things like, if you acutely lose your voice, let me know, come in for an examination or, you know, go to your ENT. We need to make sure you don't have a bleed because if you do, you need to rest your voice. Okay. Okay. So just a lot of things. There are so many variables, um, but you just have to be cognizant of all of them, especially within this clinical population. Right. Thank you for sharing that because I really had that question about candidacy, like how do I know if the person's like a good candidate for resonant or like vocal functional exercises. So that explains what path we should go on. So another question is, uh, we did ask our listeners if they had any specific questions for you. And we did get two popular questions. So I can go one by one. Okay. So the first one that people really wanted to know is like, um, what do you think, or what do you consider are the three most important things that a clinician needs to be mindful of when approaching the head and neck cancer population. So this could be pertaining to anything like diagnosis, treatment, or just counseling. I'd have to say there are more than three things, right? Yeah. So um, I'll I'll try and condense it as much as possible without Mm -hmm. getting onto my soapbox, okay? The first thing I would say for any clinician is establishing competency in that area, okay? So establishing competency, one comes from working with someone who's familiar with working in that area. Um, Make sure that you're up to date with the evidence-based practice within that area when it comes to intervention, Make sure that you understand what other professionals are doing and what those treatments entail, okay? So for example, you have to understand what the radiation oncologist is doing and what the impact of that treatment is, what uh, the medical oncologist is doing and what the impact of that treatment is, what the head and neck surgeon is doing and what the impact of that treatment is. And also understanding that one, your role is extremely important, but two, also that there are a lot of other people that have to be involved in the care of this patient, which go beyond just the head and neck surgeon or the SLP or the radiation oncologist or the medical oncologist, okay? So, you know, we talked about forming a team of social workers, psychologists, dentists, like you have to form your own little community and understand what the impact of all of those professionals is on your patient and how they help your patient. You can't do everything. Neither can your head and neck surgeon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So establish competency would be the first. The other way of establishing competency is, um, I would say it is absolutely important to work in that setup with someone who knows what they're doing. Okay. So when I started off at Tata, I was very fortunate, you know, I was with Dr. Butcher, but I was also with these wonderful head and neck surgeons who taught me everything I knew at that time. So there was, you know, Dr. Prathamish Pai, Dr. Mandadish Pandey, Dr. Chokar, Dr. Pantavede, all of them were responsible for teaching me what I knew about head and neck cancers because I would go to the OR and observe with them. They're the ones who actually taught me how to change tracheoesophageal prosthetics. And then I was learning on the, um, SLP side of things. Mm -hmm. When I came to UK, you know, I was um, University of Kentucky, not London. You know, (laughs) when I came here, I was familiar with, you know, the treatment modalities and all of that stuff, right? Because I had worked with all of them. But uh, until I started working with my colleague, Tammy Wigginton, who's in the Voice and Swallow Clinic. Now, she's someone who has experience with this population for over 30 years. I didn't have a lot of experience with HMEs larry tubes all of these laryngectomy accessories i really didn't have a lot of experience with that i learned you know all the nuances of voice therapy from from dr stemple but i learned all of it from firsthand observing them and understanding the variability within the population Mm -hmm. so you cannot learn everything from a book and you cannot learn everything from a talk if this is an area that you want to work with or work in complete a fellowship Mm-hmm. Okay, or reach out to someone who works in a cancer hospital and observe with them 
three months, six months, whatever it might be, but make that effort. So I know Arun has now, he has a fellowship program at Tata mm-hmm. where people can specialize in head and neck cancers. And I think that would be a wonderful opportunity, you know, for a, a clinician in India to establish mm-hmm. their competency in that area. And um, three things, right? I have about eight in there. Uh, (laughs) and uh, what else what else would I say mentorship mentorship is always important Um, you have to work with someone who has the patient's best interest at heart Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you work with someone and you know you get that feeling that is the right mentor in addition to them being experts at what they do okay so make sure that you choose someone to observe um, who's not just good at what they do, but they're also a good person, you know, and uh, there is a certain amount of humility that good people have. Okay, so Dr. Semple is, you know, this world-renowned voice researcher, but he's the most humble person I know, because to this day, he always says, well, I don't know this, you know, let's go and find more out. Mm-hmm. So really keep your pride aside, especially when you're a new clinician. Be used to being wrong a lot more than you're going to be right. Mm-hmm. And be used to, uh, you know, get used to just taking feedback and constructive criticism. It's very difficult to do it in the beginning. It's very difficult to be um, told that you're wrong. But at the same time, this is clinical teaching. You know, the way I see it is, if you knew everything, why would you go to school, right? right? So you have to think about it that way. Have a certain, certain amount of humility, have respect for the person that you're working with. And of course, most importantly, have the patient's best interest at heart. Yeah, for sure, yeah. I think that's really important because it's like patient-centered approach in the end. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And another question, um, also it's my question too. So <laughs> we know that cancer pain is a big public health concern. Did you say cancer pain? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cancer mm-hmm. pain. So um, when we're dealing or uh, when we are like treating a person with head and cancer in your practice, what role has pain management played, especially in voice therapy? Um. I'd say not a lot of my patients have uh, issues with pain and voice therapy because most of my voice therapy patients fall into that early glottic cancer group and the Mm -hmm. incidence of pain is pretty low in that group. Um, I also don't want to forget to say this, but, you know, early glottic cancers can also be treated by laser resection or Mm -hmm. resection of the tumor and the survival rates are comparable across both groups. Okay, it's just that there are certain tumor characteristics which would put you into one or the other group for treatment. And sometimes it is patient characteristics. For example, uh, a couple of years back, we had a lawyer who came to our clinic and he had a tumor which, would, which could have been resectable and could have been treated with radiation therapy. But, you know, this is where your role as an SLP comes in. What we said to him was, uh, and, you know, the conversation that the head and neck surgeon had with him is that there is a chance that you would be permanently dysphonic if you had laser resection. Mm -hmm. And there is a better chance that we would conserve your voice if you had radiation therapy. So which one are you going to pick? And because he's a lawyer, he said, let me go with radiation therapy. But to come, I digressed. Great. I thought I would never do it and I did. Um, But to go back to your question, as far as pain is concerned, I think pain affects any sort of rehabilitation, whether it's dysphagia or voice. Mm -hmm. And if that is something that your patient is complaining of, alert your head and neck cancer surgeon because pain is never a good symptom. So the first thing that you should be thinking about is should your head and neck surgeon or your patient be worried about recurrent disease or persistent disease in the presence of pain and that's the first thing that has to be ruled out and then of course treating that pain but that is completely a medical issue however Mm -hmm. it is certainly a medical issue that is going to be a barrier to treatment okay yes thank you for answering those questions for our listeners lastly i think this is a very important question Mm -hmm. personally for me as well 
and I thought we should discuss the topic of advocacy. Advocating for our role in the interdisciplinary team as well as patient care in head and neck cancer is very important. We do know that there are greater benefits seen when patient's therapy begins preoperatively. Can you give our listeners some advice, especially related to the Indian scenario about how to be part of the patient care team for head and neck cancer? So the first thing I would start is by saying that you, again, going back to first establishing your competency in the area, right? Because if you're not fit to treat a patient, you certainly, you know, have no business going to a clinic and saying that I want to take care of these patients. And that's not just for head and neck, that would be for any population that you have to teach. The second thing I would say is that talk to the head and neck surgeon. Okay, so go and meet up with people and have a conversation with them. Um, in, in India, now I was blessed because I was at Tata. You know, Tata had a very interdisciplinary approach with patients. But that was not the case when I was in my private practice. There were some doctors who were a little more open to listening to me, some who weren't. Mm-hmm. What I will say is that establish a stronger relationship with those physicians who are ready to have that conversation, okay? And then start establishing a practice pattern with them. Also, if you complete a fellowship, say at a place like Tata, and you know, you're going to go back to wherever you're from, and you're going to start your own private practice, leverage your relationships with those physicians that you work with and say, you know, Dr. So-and-so, who do you know who practices in that area in the cancer hospital that you think I should go meet? And could you let them know that I'm moving there so that I could meet with them? Okay, so that reference helps in building confidence because now it's coming from a person that they know. And then go meet with them. And it's not just one meeting, okay? This establishing that relationship is going to take a lot of time because you're establishing your credibility, but at the same time, you're also establishing whether you can, you can work with this person, right? So it goes both ways, your colleagues. And that's something that I want you to understand that we don't work for head and neck surgeons, we work with them. We don't work for anyone, we work with people, okay? Right. We're, we're a very important part of that team. So establish who you want your colleagues to be. And then, like I said, form that social support system. So it goes beyond the head and neck surgeon. Find uh, a social worker in that area who works with a trust. So say that you know your patient needs an artificial larynx but doesn't have funds for it. How are you going to establish those funds? If they don't have feeding tube supplies, how are you going to establish funds for those, right? So there are certain things that you can help with. Find a psychologist or a psychiatrist in the area. So you know if your patient is depressed or has any of these mental health issues, you can still send them that way. But the way you're going to do that is that, and you know, we're SLPs, so we're really good at communication, right? We're communication specialists. We're good at bringing people together. I firmly believe that. Form that support system and, you know, have monthly meetings. Make sure that you're a good colleague. So for example, if you get a referral from anyone, make sure that you follow up with that physician or whoever that professional is, you know, saying thank you for your referral. This is where your patient is and this is what our plans are. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there are little things that you can do to establish and build those relationships. It's difficult. I'm not saying that it's easy at all, but I think it all just starts with a conversation. Mm -hmm. Establish competency. (laughs) I'm going to say that over and over again. Establish your competency. Because if you go to a head and neck surgeon without establishing your competency and you cannot have an educated discussion about patient management, then you've completely lost trust. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that education goes both ways. For example, um, I remember when I had my private practice, I often used to get these refer. You you have that little piece of paper, right? That comes from Nair or KEM that says speech therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And then there's a little picture of the vocal folds that the ENT has drawn with right. those little nodules. Or in some cases, they would say that, you know, this patient needs voice therapy for spasmodic dysphonia, mm-hmm. which is not the first line. Voice therapy is not the first line of treatment for that. So, you know, I had to call them back and say, thank you for the referral. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you start with. But, you know, then you say that, 
I went through these reports and if this patient has spasmodic dysphonia, mm -hmm. it would be best for you to help him, not me. So there ways in which you can communicate, you know, without being disrespectful. Uh, and, you know, that is something that you have to develop because what I firmly believe is that, you know, when you get a patient or a question or anything like that, your default setting should be to operate under the assumption that this person has the patient's best interest at heart. If you operate on that assumption, it is going to be easier for you to have a respectful conversation with the other professional. So it's extremely important just for all of us to be nice to each other, okay? No matter where we come from. So, um, you know, there are little things like that, but, you know, just make sure that you establish a good relationship with whoever you're working with. It all starts with a conversation. Just talk to them. Don't be afraid. So to sum it up, um, it all starts with a conversation. Know your content. Don't be afraid to reach out and form connections. Mm -hmm. Thank you for today and for being on air to discuss such a vital topic with us. So I'm excited for this episode to come out. Thank you so much, Roshali. That was such great information. And I'm excited for all our listeners to continue using all of this and incorporate it in clinic. Yeah, I think it's a great patient population to work with. I, I think um, for those of you who practice out there, your practices shouldn't be limited to hearing aids and pediatric speech therapy. I think there's this, especially for community-based SLPs, I think there's this whole population out there. And one of those is uh, patients with head and neck cancers. Um, thank you guys. This was a lot of fun for all those listeners out there. And even you guys, if you have any questions related to head and neck cancers, please feel free to reach out. Everyone stay safe. Stay away from COVID. <laughs> Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. So Thanks for joining us today. And we are so grateful for all the support we've received and can't wait to see where this podcast goes. Thank you. See you soon.